As we noted last week, the scene before us is one of tremendous irony that things are not as they appear. And at this moment, as Jesus now has breathed his last and the curtain of the temple has been torn in two, it would appear as if all hope is lost. In fact, the way the Gospel of Luke ends, you have two men walking down a road thinking that very thing. This was the one that we thought was to be the rescuer of Israel. And in fact, he is, but it doesn't appear to be that way. You'll notice in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, after Jesus breathes his last, we're told there that there are women who are there at a distance and they are looking on and they are watching these events. And we're told that these are women in verse 41 that they have followed Jesus back when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. They've been following him for a very long time and they've come with him to Jerusalem. We've noted in our study of Mark that uh, this is a dangerous journey that Jesus was making. Everybody who was coming with Jesus knew that for Jesus to return to Jerusalem was returning to their doom. In fact, the disciples themselves, Thomas, said, well, let's just... Go with him and we'll die with him. They knew what was going to happen to come to Jerusalem. And yet here we see a picture of the women are there and they are beholding all these things as they are unfolding. In verse 42 it says that when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Passover, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 21, a body of an executed criminal had to be buried the same day. And we know from the reading from last week that Jesus gives his last breath at three in the afternoon. And if you remember in Jewish time, sundown is the end of the day. And so you only have just a few hours to be able then to fulfill what Deuteronomy says, is that an executed criminal must be put and buried within that same day. And so Joseph of Arimathea, notice a respected member of the council, and yet it says he also is looking for the kingdom of God. Other accounts say he's a disciple who is a follower of Jesus And he bravely now takes courage and asks Pilate for the body. You'll notice in verse 44 it says, Pilate is surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning a centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. We talked about this a couple of times over the past few weeks. Crucifixion was not intended to be fast or quick or let's just hurry this up. It is intended as a long, painful deterrent for all to witness. Crucified victims stayed days on the cross. We even have evidence of an individual who lasted nine days on a cross. It was not something that you died quickly from. And hence you see Pilate's surprise that Jesus has only been up there for a matter of hours and now Joseph is asking for the body and Pilate now is confirming with his centurion, is he really dead? And yes, yes he is. There are a lot of reasons to consider for that. As I noted last week, the scourging that Jesus undertook appears to be severe. 
We noted that he's unable to carry his cross. So the severity of what he has endured in leading up to the cross is a contributing factor to the short amount of time for him being on the cross. But I believe more significantly than that, if you remember, Jesus over and over again went around saying, nobody's taking my life from me. I'm going to give it up of my own accord. And Jesus is going to give his life when he is ready. And we have noted in the gospel account, we are at Passover time. And now is the time for Jesus to give up his life as the Passover, the Passover lamb to save the world from their sins. And so he is still in full control. He utters the words he desires to utter, still teaching the people from the cross and then breathes his last And thus you see this time frame given here. Verse 45, when they learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And a rolled stone against, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Okay, so it's not that nobody knows what happens to the body, and it's not that nobody knows where the body is laid. Everything has been done in order. Joseph has laid Jesus in a tomb. Women have been following Jesus. They have witnessed the events and they witness now where his body is put. As chapter 16 opens then, as was just read for us, when the Sabbath was passed. Now remember, that's going to be sundown. It's just hard because we're so used to our clocks running on the the 12 schedule and not the 6 schedule. So when Sabbath is over, you're sitting at 6 p.m. And thus you'll notice in verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might go and anoint him. So on Saturday night, in our terminology, they go to the store to purchase spices. The reason they are purchasing spices is because in those days you didn't just leave the body in the tomb and there you're sealed up and never to be touched again. In first century times within Judaism, you allowed the body to decay for one year. And then after the year was up, you'd return to the tomb and you would gather the bones that were remained and you'd put them in an ossuary, a bone box. And you'd put them in the box and the tomb then could be reused, typically by your family members over and over and over again. The spices then are... Many, I love John's account, weighing significant amounts of spices. And the purpose of that is so that you can deal with the stench when you're going to come back later. You bring a ton of spices in, you put it in that tomb, you have the body prepared that way. So when you come back in the following year to get the bones out, you're not going to be overwhelmed with the smell. The point of all this is very important. Nobody is expecting to find an empty tomb, are they? You're not going and buying an overwhelming amount of spices to go shove in a tomb if you think the tomb is going to be empty. You're buying it because you believe he's dead, he's going to stay dead, and he's going to stay dead for at least a year, and we need to put the spices in there and seal it up so that when we come back in a year, we will be able to deal with the bones. Nobody's expecting resurrection. 
Nobody's expecting an empty tomb. In fact, you'll notice in verse 2, very early on the first day of the week. So Saturday night, they buy the spices. It's too dark to handle the body. We wait until the following day, first day of the week. They now come to the tomb very early when the sun had risen. Verse 3, and they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Notice the discussion is not... Boy, we sure hope Jesus is raised from the dead just like you said he would three days later. (laughs) We're not having deep theological discussions about, I remember what Jesus said, that he said that the disciples were going to betray him and reject him and all leave, but then he's going to raise and go before to Galilee. Nobody's talking like that. The discussion is, now how are we going to get in the tomb to be able to put the spices in there? Because the stone is very large. And they're going to need help to roll that thing back. There's zero expectation here. You don't have disciples contriving anything or pre-believing and wishfully hoping something's about to take place. In their minds, it's over and done. And all hope is lost. And so they prepare to come to the tomb. In verse 4, and looking up, they saw the stone, which very large, had been rolled back. You can imagine if you are a disciple of Jesus and you look, and now the stone is not where you expect it to be. The stone is rolled back. What is your first inclination but to look and see what's happened? And you'll notice in verse 5, they enter the tomb and a young man is sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. That's not what you would expect to see in a tomb. You walk in the tomb, the stones rolled back, you poke your head inside and there is a young man sitting there, (laughs) right there where Jesus' body had been. Thus they are alarmed. (laughs) What is going on? Verse 6, he says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Essentially, you're not in the wrong place. This is the tomb. This is the place where he laid. But he's not here. He's risen from the dead. And now a message. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I want to take two points this morning from verse 7 and one point from verse 8 that I think Mark is keen in as the big deal in regards to his account regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Number one in verse 7, the words, just as he told you. If you remember when Jesus is with the disciples and they are walking up the Mount of Olives and Jesus drops a startling declaration. You are all going to flee. You are all going to forsake me. You're all going to leave. And if you remember, he followed that up with, but then I'm going to be raised and I will go ahead of you to Galilee. In fact, notice that's what the young man here even quotes in verse 7. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him 
just as He told you. Remember what He said three days ago? He said He would raise from the dead and He will see you in Galilee. That's exactly what's about to happen. Which has been one of the key points then ultimately of what you see Mark wanting to show us. Mark has been showing us the necessity of discipleship and that a disciple is willing to suffer to follow Jesus, even to the cross. It was made very clear in the imagery that we saw last week with Barabbas and with Simon and with the centurion. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And now here is this declaration. Just as Jesus said, all these things have happened. And the point is, Jesus has gone about saying, yes, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be handed over to these people, but I'm going to be raised up. That this is the path to glory. That full life comes through serving, through giving, through suffering, through hardship. I believe this is one of the hardest things for humans and for us as Christians to wrap our minds around Yet it's stated for us all throughout this gospel. True life is not about avoiding difficult times. That the path of following Jesus means an acceptance of difficulties to follow. It's been the big message over and over again is that the path that Jesus takes is not a path of avoiding all the difficult places. Jesus doesn't go and proclaim himself to only the people that are going to treat him really well. He goes to Jerusalem over and over again, and it goes really badly. He crosses the sea, and everybody says, get out of here and go back. He goes to his hometown, and they're all like, yeah, whatever, we'll throw you off a cliff. Uh, You have that over and over again in Jesus' life, is that the path to glory... The path of God's exaltation is not the path of ease and comfort. It is the path of difficulty. It is the path of trials and it is the path of suffering. And one of the greatest hopes that is put before us here is that death does not have the final say. The reason why that is so important is because we have seen Jesus say, if you want to follow me, you're going to need to take up your cross and follow me. And that's hard for, we, we think of crosses as, you know, okay, I'm going to have something really hard. You know, I had to bear my cross today. I had an alarm clock that made me wake up early and I didn't sleep in. And look how I've borne my cross for Jesus. Here I am this morning. That's not the idea. You have to remember the cross is an execution tool. So choose your execution tool of modern times and plug that into what's being said. You know, it'd be like taking up your electric chair or your lethal injection needles or whatever you want to use for a kind of capital punishment and follow him. It is a speaking of you are going to die for me. You are giving up your life for me. You will sacrifice all for me. And here is Jesus showing that's what he does And what's the result? Does death have the final say over him? No. So why do we have to fear giving ourselves and any suffering or any difficulty even to the point of death 
when death doesn't have the final say. That's what Jesus is displaying here is I told you I would be raised from the dead and I'm going ahead of you. And in the same way, we have this great hope. The second great hope is also found in verse seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter. I think that's an interesting way that's put. It's not just go tell the disciples he's going to go before you to Galilee. But remember again the scene by which Jesus said those words. Jesus said you are all going to fall away because of me. But I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to be raised from the dead after that. And I'll go before you to Galilee. Do you remember Peter's response to that? <laughs> that's not going to happen on my end. They all might fall away. But not me. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And Peter says, no, I would rather die with you than ever deny you. That's not going to happen. And the other disciples all say likewise with Peter. And then we read those chilling words that they all forsook him and fled. And then we're immediately put into the courtyard of the high priest and here is Peter, and he's he boldly proclaiming Jesus he is not. Peter, of all people, is now denying Jesus, though warned that that would be exactly what would happen that night, denies Jesus three times. Is there a way to overstate the catastrophic failure of faith that Peter has exhibited at that moment? I mean, catastrophic failure. You were told a couple hours earlier, you're going to deny me. You need to sit up, watch, and pray. Temptation's coming. You're going to deny me three times. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not. Well, that will never happen. And if you remember, once the rooster crowed, Peter remembers the words of Jesus, and he weeps bitterly over that. There is something so hopeful to the words that are proclaimed here. But go tell his disciples and don't leave Peter out. What would we probably do? (laughs) Tell the disciples, but not Peter, that you know. (laughs) You blew it, Peter. You you had your chance. You, You knew this was going to happen. You chose to deny him three times. One of the beauties and the hope of the resurrection is that it is never too late to come back to Jesus. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how weighty you see it. I don't care how deep the sin is that you believe you've committed. I don't care how large the quantity of sins they may be or the severity of the quality of sins you may think they are. It's never too late. Here is Peter in a matter of just a couple hours denying Jesus three times, and the message is, you go get Peter to come back to. Peter is just as welcome as a disciple of Jesus as everybody else. 
In fact, think about Peter is not just brought back. And now when you come to the book of Acts and we start listing apostles, well, his name's there, but his name's always last. You know, we're going to put him at the bottom of the list now because, you know, he did epically fail out there. No, it is a beautiful thing where it is Peter standing up with the eleven. He is put back right to where he was from the very beginning as representative of the disciples and leading these disciples. He's right there. There is something so hopeful that is given to us in this message that it is never too late for us to repent and come back to Jesus. There are times when we think that that one was the final straw. How could God ever take me back? That sin's too much. I keep struggling with the same one over and over and over again. How could God ever forgive me? And one of the things that we have to remember is that Jesus did not come because we did not need him. Sometimes we want to put Jesus in that box. Well, Jesus came, but not me, not for me, because I'm not that bad. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to do well on my own. That's how we attempt to do it. Is I can be good enough. Everybody else might be bad, but I'm going to be good enough. And I love how Peter exhibits that. They might all fall away. (laughs) Not me. Not me. Jesus came because we do need him. Because that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what was necessary at this point is that we need somebody to rescue us. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And this is the message. You will go with me again. They all had forsaken him. We often hang a lot on Peter, but they all ran too. We even saw in Mark's account, there's a guy that runs away naked for his life. I mean, they're just, we're afraid. We're gone. We're out of here. And Jesus is opening arms and saying, you can still come back. It's not too late. I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciple. I came to forgive you. Which then leads now to verse 8. And they they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, for they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. A lot of people are really troubled with that verse. In fact, historically, that is a troubling verse, all the way back to the first century. How could it possibly be that we would have a gospel that would say something like this? It's it's not that they're running out of the tomb and they're proclaiming Jesus and look at what he did. No, they're running in fear. (laughs) They're afraid. I think it's interesting for us to consider a few things about what we're seeing in the book of Mark. When you have statements like this that are open-ended, that they are causing for the individual who reads it to make a decision. In fact, when you think about the book of Acts, who has not read through the book of Acts and you get to the end of chapter 28 and you say, how in the world did the book stop right here? What happens to Paul? (laughs) I want to know what's the rest of the story. It just has this sudden stop. And you go, what? But it seems that the point is, now you're filling in the story. What are you going to do? The gospel has been spread. What is Acts 29 going to be? What are you going to do? 
And the same way you will notice with the Gospel of Mark, this strange kind of conclusion as we're rounding the corner here. And here we go. And now they all run and they're trembling and they're astonished and seizing them and they're not saying anything to anybody and they're all afraid. But the Gospel of Mark has been so much about fear. If you've been with us this year as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, fear has played a pivotal role in various people. And I want to remind you of that because you will see the weight of what happens as this Gospel then comes to an end in that way. If you remember back in chapter 4, we have the scene with they're all in the boat and the storm suddenly comes across the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is sleeping. And the disciples, don't you care that we're perishing? We're all going to die here. And Jesus calms the storm. But if you remember that Jesus then turns and says to them, why are you afraid? And then he says this, have you still no faith? Fear and faith are constantly connected in this gospel. And what begins in the gospel of Mark is that fear is going to become a challenge to faith. Fear is going to become a decisive moment where you must determine, are you going to believe in the Lord or are you going to walk away? And chapter 4 opens that door. Remember that in chapter 5, Jesus crosses over uh, to the other side of the sea. He heals this man who has all these unclean spirits. Unclean spirits are all called legion. And he casts out the demons. And you remember all the people of the countryside and this city all come and see this healed man sitting there in his right mind and they are afraid. And what is their response? They go up to Jesus and say, please leave. They all don't bow down and go, you must be God. We've chained this guy up and clearly you're the son of God because look at what you did. They go up to him and say, leave. Jesus gets in the boat and he crosses back over. (coughs) The next scene in chapter 5, there's a woman with a flow of blood. And she thinks in her mind, if I can just simply go up and touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed. And Jesus stops the story as soon as she touches this whole thronging crowd and turns and says, who's touched me? And it says that she's trembling and just explains everything that happened. Here's what I was thinking. Here's how it all went. I just believed that if I touched your garment, I'd be healed. I've gone to all the doctors and all the doctors didn't help. In fact, they made it worse and I spent all my money and you were here. She just lays it all out. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Fear and faith. What will you do with your fear? Will you come to Jesus or will you walk away? Remember in that very scene, the whole reason that scene happened was because Jairus has a daughter who's sick at home and they're on their way to Jairus' house. And then a messenger comes to Jairus and says, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. And Jesus says what is the pivotal part of this whole book, do not fear only believe. You see the theme that is beginning to thread through Mark's gospel is fear becomes a question mark. Fear is, are you going to follow? Are you going to have faith? Are you going to obey? Remember, Jairus then continues the walk with Jesus. And Jesus raises that girl from the dead. 
Continuing with that idea in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 6, you might remember that we have Jesus walking on the water. The disciples are all afraid. They think He is a ghost. And so Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And listen to the words of verse 52 regarding His disciples. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus is walking on the water. They're afraid. Why are they afraid? Why don't they understand? Their hearts are hardened. See, fear and faith are put in a question. Is your fear going to cause you to follow or cause you to walk away. This point the disciples are not understanding yet. Chapter 9 verse 32. Jesus declares. That the son of man is going to be killed. And be raised from the dead. And notice it says the disciples. They did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask him. And we spent time in that lesson. Talking about. Fear was supposed to lead to faith. They should have gone to Jesus. And said we don't understand this. But instead. Fear causes them to lack understanding. And they don't understand what Jesus is saying. And rather than than causing faith within them, it prohibits faith from coming in. And then finally, you have in Mark 11, 18, Mark 11, 32, and Mark 12, 12. If you might remember, why are the Jewish leaders unwilling to listen and do anything with what Jesus is saying? It states over and over again, they feared the people. Fear again is causing them not to have faith in who Jesus is. What Mark now is doing as he brings all this together in this gospel is that he is now putting us at the point of decision. What are you going to do with the evidence and the information that's been given to you? You have been presented with the miracle of Jesus and Him raising from the dead. And you have been presented, as we've gone through this book, the testimony of the teachings of Jesus. And now we're in verse 8 of chapter 16, and we're going to end the sentence with fear. The women are going to go out in fear. What are they going to do? And the question is being left to you as well. Will fear cause you to believe or not believe. Then we think about it for a long enough time, the concept of following Jesus ought to be a fearful thing. For Jesus to keep telling everybody, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, you've got to forsake everything. If you want to follow me, you can't make excuses. You don't, I don't care if you've got an ox and you've got land and things to all check out. There's no excuses. You must give your life completely to Jesus. And the prospect of actually doing that, of truly putting your life in the hands of Jesus, complete surrender to Him, I think is a terrifying thing. The way we kind of bridge that is that we say, well, I'll keep trusting in myself and doing all my things and I'll depend upon my my wisdom and my success and my power and my wealth and all these kinds of things and I'll still follow Jesus. I'm going to trust in me. But the true disciple follows all the way to the cross. 
And if we're going to be honest with what that really looks like, we're being asked to consider, is fear going to cause us to not walk with Him? And we'd be too afraid about what could happen to us, what could happen to others. Too afraid to make decisions that are strictly based upon a spiritual decision. That we'd be willing to do what Jesus talks about, that it's not about the pursuing of this world, but if you want to follow him, I want you then to trust completely in him. That you would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things would be happened to you, happening, given to you. And so often we have the, I will seek all these things first, and I will carry Jesus in my side pocket along the way, and in case I get in trouble, he'll be my insurance card. I'm driving my car just fine, and he'll just kind of be there as my co-pilot from time to time. I'll get some directions from him when I need him. It is a frightening thing to say, I recognize that I'm not in control and I'm going to follow wherever he goes. So often what you see, especially on a day like today, is that the resurrection is painted as a feel-good story. It's about Easter eggs and candies and chocolate bunnies and sunrises. It's not the intent of the story. The story is not. Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody go home today and continue doing whatever you want to do. Yay, Jesus, we thank you for raising from the dead. Go on and live your life. The resurrection story demands a decision. That's what it's all about. Now are you going to follow him? Now the evidence is put before you. And we need to recognize that we have a difficult choice that truly lies ahead of us. That a faithful disciple will act in the face of fear. That we are saying, we will follow you. And it doesn't matter what people say. And it doesn't matter what people think. And it doesn't matter what the economic repercussions are. Or what that does to our family. Or what that does to reputation. I am going to follow Jesus no matter what. That's where the book of Acts goes. As everybody says, yeah, we're going to follow Him and it's not about this world. We've got to follow this risen Savior. They all don't go, hey, you know what? That was great. He raised from the dead. Let's all go back home and do what we were always doing. The book of Acts becomes revolutionary. And it is up for us to decide what we are going to do. If you're about my age and you were forced to read a lot of books in school, I'm in my 40s, um, there was something that was called, I would read these, they were called twist-a-plot books. Some of them were called choose-your-own-adventure books. I liked those because you would read along in the story and then it would stop and it would say, now you pick the path you want to go into the jungle, follow this path. If you would like to go into the desert, follow the turn to this page. And you would pick which page you're going to go to. You can jump to page 40 and continue on that story path or turn to page 66 and you will continue the story path. And it would just continue different forks in the road as you would read the book. And what the Gospel of Mark has essentially done as it comes to a close is do the exact same thing here. The story's been set. The evidence has been given. The teachings have been revealed. The miracle is on display. Now you have to pick the path. 
what will you do? The choice is yours. The outcomes are already written. That's what's so fascinating. The outcomes are already written. How it will go for those who do not follow Jesus, that path has already been determined. You can jump to that page and read exactly how that's going to play out. In fact, when I'd read those books, sometimes I'd cheat because I didn't know which way to pick. So I'd jump ahead and kind of read how it would go in both of them and go, I think this sounds like the better path. You know, God lets you cheat already. He told you if you go this path, destruction. And if you go this path, life. And crazily, fear keeps us from taking the path of life. And we keep living how we want to live and doing what we want to do and trusting in ourselves and it's going to be about us and we'll just carry Jesus along from time to time as we need Him. You know, it's Easter. We should better show up for church. Instead of it being a true, real life decision, today is the day to follow Jesus. The destiny is determined. The outcome is set. It's just up for you to choose which way you're going to go. What will you do with the fear of being a disciple of Jesus? Will you say it's worth the risk, even though it's not really a risk, is it? You know how it's all going to turn out in the end. Death doesn't have a final say. That's been proven. What's the worst that can happen to you in following Jesus? If death does not have a say over the disciple. I'm looking forward to, I think it's in two weeks of Hebrews. That's going to talk about that very idea. But we can bring in 1 Corinthians 15. Where is the sting of death? It's been dismantled. There is nothing to fear. Jesus has set the course. Let's take up the cross and follow him. Let's go to the path of victory, the path of hope, the path of glory, the path of eternity with our God. That is how the gospel is set before you this morning. What will you do? Which way will you go? Whom will you serve? We call for you this morning to choose to turn away from your sins. To choose the path of life and not the path of destruction. The path for self-service Living for your own desires, letting God ride in the back seat from time to time and calling on Him on occasion, that path is due. Jesus Himself said, There will be many who are going to really be surprised because they said, Lord, Lord, and they did all these great works, Matthew chapter 7. We prophesied in your name and did great works in your name. Jesus says, I don't know you. But you're not truly a follower. Will you follow Jesus this very day? Will you choose to be with him? And one of the greatest hopes that we have is just as Jesus rose from the dead and ascends to the Father, if we truly will be a disciple of Jesus, fear's not a factor, fear's not at play but instead resurrection to be with God for eternity because Jesus has made it possible. I encourage you, if you need to know more and you say, I'm just not sure about that, don't be like the disciples that we saw in chapter 9. 
Would you ask one of us? I'd be happy to talk to you about the things of God. I'd be happy to answer your questions. I would be happy to get together with you and talk to you about how I can help you in any way or show you what God says about those things. And if you know exactly what you should do, you know you haven't been living as the way you ought, and now is the day to be a Christian, we invite you to do that right now. Why don't you come forward while we stand and while we